As Paul said, my name is Peter. Uh, my beautiful wife, Grace, is in the front row. We are actually going to be celebrating our first year of marriage uh, two weeks from today. So very exciting. We uh, live in Phoenixville. We both work at the university. That's actually where we met. And uh, we're just excited to be members of GVF. We've been here for a couple of years now. Now, if it's okay, I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious day that you have made. We ask that you let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, speak through me today. Let the message permeate the hearts of the congregation. Let it be useful to them and edifying, and ultimately let your name be glorified in the process. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember the morning of January 16th, 2006, like it was yesterday. And I remember it very clearly because I woke up that morning and I was drinking. I drank a lot in those days, and I'm not talking about orange juice. That morning in particular, I had a 40 ounce of old English malt liquor. Disgusting. (laughs) And it was warm, and it was terrible, and I was drinking it anyway because that's what I did. And I remember that morning feeling so overwhelmingly depressed. See, because I had been an alcoholic for 15 years up until that point. And everything that I had accomplished in those 15 years was gone. At that point, I had lost my job, I had lost my apartment, I had no money, no car, no license. I was ruined, you see, ruined. And I remember it so clearly because the feeling that I had in my heart was just utter devastation, for lack of a better term. I was ruined. And I remember that morning feeling that I was going to die at some point of alcoholism. I was either going to die in a terrible car accident, I was going to die cirrhosis of the liver, or I was going to die by suicide because that was the only end that I could find. In that particular morning, I was so fed up with the shame and the regret and the bitterness and the overwhelming guilt for the way my life had turned out that I decided I would take door number three. So I remember going around the house and looking for any sleeping pill that I could find, and I I took them to the kitchen table And I piled them up, and I decided there wouldn't be enough to do the job. So I actually got into a car, no license, remember, drinking, went to a store and bought as much sleeping pills as I could afford at the time. And I brought them back to the house, and I opened them up, and I piled them onto the table. And I actually thought in my mind that this was great. This was a good thing that I was about to do. You see, because I knew that in just a few minutes, my pain, my torment, my nightmare would be over with. I was happy about what was going to happen. And so without further ado, I started to swallow the sleeping pills a handful at a time, and I was chasing them with that beer. How ironic is that? And I remember waking up in the hospital about 15 hours later, thinking this is just one more thing I'm not good at. I survived it. My hands were handcuffed to the bed. My mouth tasted 
like charcoal, because that's what they do when you overdose on Tylenol. And I would, I would like to tell you that that changed my life. I would like to tell you that that incident was it for me. Over the next three months, I was in psychiatric facilities and rehabs, and I would love to be able to tell you that I moved on with my life and put alcohol behind me, but that just isn't the case. You see, the nature of the beast was so strong in my life that I was drinking again within six months. Imagine that. Imagine coming to a point in your life where you are so in utter despair that your best decision is to kill yourself, and then six months later you go back to the very thing that caused you to think that way. I was hopeless, you see. I was totally powerless. I couldn't save myself no matter what I tried. It wasn't until two years later, in fact, two nightmarish years later, that I finally reached my bottom. And I remember uh, being in the Teen Challenge training program. It's a Christian drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. And for the first couple of weeks, I didn't want anything to do with it. You see, I mean, I wasn't Christian by any stretch of the imagination. All I know is that these people were praying to thin air and reading some ancient book. It didn't mean anything to me. But one thing I do remember, the, the guys in there kept telling me that there was this man named Jesus that could help me. And I was understandably skeptical. I had heard this before, not the Jesus thing, but I had heard that these programs could help you. I had been to rehabs and detox centers and counseling and AA. None of those things helped. So when these guys said that Jesus could help me, I'm like, who is Jesus? Where is he? Where was Jesus when I was piling up pills on the table to kill myself? Where was Jesus when I was ruining my life with alcohol? Where was Jesus that day? And that night, about three weeks into the program, I was laying in bed, and I started to think the same way I thought two years earlier, and that was that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, and that I was done. I was fed up, and I was going to end it. I was going to end it, and this time I wasn't going to fail. And as I was in bed, and I was thinking about what I could use to finish the job, something reminded me what these guys were telling me, that this guy named Jesus could save me. And at that point, I had nothing to lose. You see, it was death or Jesus. That was it. I had no other options. And so I cried out to this guy. I was angry. I said, Jesus, if you're alive, if you're real, then help me. Help me because I can't help myself. I need you in my life. And I need it right this second, because if you don't do something right now, I'm going to. And I meant it. I meant it just as strongly as I had meant it a couple of years earlier. And I'll tell you, within seconds, literally within seconds of me crying out, I felt this wave of love pour over me like a wave. It was like a blanket had been draped over my back. I felt like a a 10,000 pound weight was lifted off of my shoulders. And in that moment, I actually, for the first time in in my life, 
felt the love of God. And I knew he was real. Nothing could tell me any different then or now because in that moment I was changed, you see, instantly changed. My thoughts, my attitudes, my actions changed. I quit drinking immediately. I quit cussing. I quit smoking. I quit everything. And not because the Bible says that stuff is bad, but because I didn't want to do it anymore. It was a transformation. See, the... When I was at my weakest point in life, the power of Christ came in for me. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And no truer words were ever spoken for me than these at the point. And what does Paul say? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I would like to talk to you about that power today. The power of Christ in the life of the believer. Specifically, I would like to talk about three areas. And the first is Christ's power over creation. The second is his power over the law. And the third is his power in regeneration. And the goal today is to get you to come to a point in your life, if you're not already there, where you can put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has the power, no matter where you are, to lift you out of your darkness. Do we really believe this? is a good question. Do we truly, really believe in our heart of hearts what the Bible says about Jesus? I mean, how do we know that Christ can do what he says he can do? Especially when we read Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? How do we know that Christ knows? How do we know that Christ can do what he says he can do? This guy right here is Robert Sinsheimer. Robert Sinsheimer is the uh, professor emeritus and um, chancellor emeritus at Caltech. He's in the field of uh, microbiology. And in the early 1990s, uh, Robert Sinsheimer spearheaded a program called the Human Genome Project. And the goal of this project was to map out a single strand of human DNA. And it was a massive undertaking. It took the collective effort of 1,000 scientists more than 13 years to complete. And by all accounts, they did a really good job. In 2003, they released their findings. And for the first time in the history of humankind, we had a genetic blueprint for exactly how the human being is made. They found some really amazing things, too. Like, for instance, DNA holds a lot of information. And I mean a whole lot. They say that one teaspoon, just one teaspoon of DNA, has enough information to create every species of creature that has ever lived, 
and still hold enough space for all of the information in every book ever written in one teaspoon. That is a lot of information. Now, see, I, I am not astounded at what the DNA can do. I'm more astounded at how the DNA can do it. So the question is, where did the information come from? Who is the author of the code? Who is the author of life? Who wrote it? There's our answer, Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And again in John 1.4, through him, again Jesus Christ, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. So when it comes to the question of whether or not Jesus knows what it takes to create the human being, well, there's really no question. But is that all it takes to know the heart? In other words, did Robert Sinsheimer answer the question? When he cracked the, uh, the DNA code, can he say that he knows the heart? Of course, the answer is No. Science will never be able to answer that question, no matter how many advances they make, no matter how much information they uncover. In order to answer that question, one must know our hearts intimately. Is Jesus that person? We read in John 1.14 that the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only did Jesus write the code to create the human, he actually became the same code. He became a man. And he was fully human and fully divine. In fact, it says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but one whom in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus doesn't just know what it takes to create the human. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He can sympathize with us because of that. He grew tired. He grew hungry. He grew thirsty. He felt pain. He felt sadness. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in the wilderness by the devil. And yet he didn't sin. And see, because he knows what it's like to be human, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And what I found out later after I was saved was that the reason I continued to drink for all of those years was because I could not forgive myself for what I had become. Every morning I would wake up and the, the utter despair in my life was too much and I couldn't forgive myself. I had hurt too many people and I had hurt myself too much. I was caught in this cycle of self-defeat. I would wake up with negative feelings. They would lead to negative actions and the actions would lead to negative consequences and the consequences would lead back to negative feelings and then actions 
and then consequences and feelings and actions and consequences. And it was just this vicious uh, cycle. But what Jesus did for me that day, I wish I remember the day, I don't remember. It was the third week of October 2008, that's all I remember. What he did for me that day was he forgave my sins, and I felt the forgiveness. And that actually leads me to my second point. How is it that Christ can forgive sin? I mean, is he authorized to forgive it? Especially in light of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So how can Christ simply forgive sin? This is uh, Jokar Sarnov, otherwise known as the Boston Bomber. Him and his brother Tamerlane on April 15, 2013, set off pressure cooker bombs at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killed three people, injured 264 others, and the other 264 were terribly, terribly injured. Many of them lost limbs. On April 8th, almost two years to the day, April 8th this past uh, 2015, Jokar was found guilty on all 30 counts, including capital murder. And just this past May 15th, just last week, he stood before a judge and was facing, was facing his sentence, and his, he, was, he was facing the death penalty. Now let me ask you a question. What would you, what would you think or how would you feel if the judge from behind his desk said, you know what, Jokar, I am a forgiving judge, I am a loving judge, I know you committed some heinous crimes, but your sins are forgiven. You can, you can go ahead and go, you're free to go. I mean, how would you feel inside? Many of us would probably think that there was a judge on the bench that was more corrupt than the people he pardons. And why would we feel that way? Because the law demands justice, right? The law demands punishment. Is God any different? I mean, the wages of sin is death. That's divine law. So if if the Lord simply forgave our sins, how would he be any different than a judge? Jokar Sarnoff was sentenced to death for his sins. Here's an interesting conundrum, Proverbs 17:15. It says, "He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord." He who justifies the wicked, that's us, and he who condemns the righteous, that's Christ, are both an abomination to the Lord. But isn't that what Christ did for us? Didn't he justify the wicked and condemn himself? He said, I, no one takes my life, I lay it down of my own accord. So does that mean that Christ is an abomination to the Lord? How do we get past this conundrum in Proverbs? How can Christ be just and the justifier of wicked people? I'd like to introduce to you two words today. The first is propitiation. 
Very simply put, propitiation means substitution. We read about this in Romans uh, chapter 3, that Christ became the propitiation for us. What does that mean? We've all heard it. We know what it is. You know the answer already. See, the wages of sin is death, so we all deserve death. It's really as simple as that. And I'm not talking just physical death either. I'm talking about divine wrath. The Bible says that the only thing left for the sinner is the wrath of God. So, should we fear death? Should you and I fear divine wrath? And the answer is no. Because when Christ hung on that cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, you see. He became the propitiation. So he can be just and the justifier of wicked people. He can condemn the wicked, excuse me, justify the wicked and condemn the righteous. Why? Because he paid the penalty. He became the propitiation for our sin. And if you look at, oh, it's it's finished, I'm sorry. (laughs) That means there's nothing else we can add to it. It is finished. It's done with. It's over with. There is no condemnation in Christ. It says in Ephesians 1.20 that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when it comes to the question of whether or not Christ has the authority to forgive sin, the answer again is yes. He has the authority because it was all given to him by the Father. This should be very comforting to us, especially when we are faced with a situation in our life where we are not quite sure whether Christ can forgive that or, conversely, whether we are not quite sure whether we can forgive other people when they sin against us. The second word I would like to teach you today is called expiation. Now, the clearest illustration I can give to you for expiation is that imagine when a woman is raped. If you speak to women who have gone through this terrible, terrible thing, they will use words like dirty, humiliated, stained, and they will do anything anything to wash the stain of sin that was perpetrated on them. They would do anything to wash that stain away. It is a deep emotional experience, a deep emotional scar. It stains the very soul. And when you and I come to Christ, we come to Christ stained with sin Sin is so unholy that the God of the universe had to sacrifice his only son to get rid of it. Think about that for a second. When the only thing that could wash away 
The stain of sin was the blood of God himself. I wonder how many times we just have a trite understanding or feeling or attitude towards sin. That sin is so heinous that God himself had to die in order to wash that stain away. Expiation is the washing away of your stain of sin. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, the blood of the Lamb covered you so that when you stand before God, he no longer sees the stain of sin. He sees the righteousness of his Son in you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was the propitiation and the expiation for our sins. We call this word justified. Everybody's heard it. We have been justified by grace, justified by faith, justified freely. What does that mean? To be justified is to know that Christ paid for our sins and has washed the stain away. We sing about this in a famous hymn. When before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He what? He washed it white as snow. This song is talking about the propitiation and the expiation of our sins. This is a song about justification. It is finished. There's nothing else we have to do. You see, forgiveness washes away that stain. And when, when, when the Lord forgave me all those years ago, I felt the stain being washed. I actually felt it in my heart. It's amazing. And now that Christ has paid the price, now that Christ has finished the work of atonement on the cross, now Christ is going to work out his most precious masterpiece. And that is to transform us, right? It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The ultimate masterpiece of Christ isn't so much the work on the cross. It is also Him restoring the image of God's people. See, the Lord has children, a lot of children. And he wants those children to be as clean as possible. And Christ is continuously transforming us. See it here again, Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. This means that you are no longer the same. If you are saved here today, you are not the same as you were before you were saved. I submit to you this. You cannot have an experience with God and stay the same. You're just saying you can't. The power of God is too much, and the transformative power of God is too much to leave you where he found you. So what does this look like? 
What does it look like to be transformed? Imagine for a moment that you had a plate of food. I'm not talking about any old plate of food. I'm talking about a good plate of food, right? I'm talking about the best plate of food you can possibly imagine. Now, for me, that would be like a uh, T-bone steak, medium rare, mashed potatoes, not the flakes. I'm talking about real smashed potatoes. Smashed, I mean, for you barbarians to peel the skin off your potatoes. That's mashed. When you leave the skin on, that's smashed. Smashed potatoes. What about steamed asparagus, maybe some buttermilk biscuits, a cup of iced tea on the side, cheesecake? Is anybody getting hungry? I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm talking about the best plate of food you can imagine like you would find at the marriage supper of the lamb. And put that on one side of a room. And then on the other side of the room, I want you to picture a trough like you would find at a farm. And fill that trough to the brim with the most disgusting, vile slop you can possibly imagine. See, on one side of the room, you have a a good plate of food. On the other side of the room, you have a trough like you find at a farm. Now, let me ask you this. What would happen if I let a pig into the room? Where would the pig go? Well, if he was a farm pig, he would go to the trough. Why? Because that's what farm pigs do. That's all they've ever known. Morning, noon, and night, their whole life, they've eaten from the trough. They don't know any different. And for them, the the slop is the best possible food they can imagine. So he'd bury his whole face in that slop, he'd wag his little tail, and he'd eat eat it till his heart is content. Can I suggest to you that that is an illustration of our spiritual state prior to conversion? We are like spiritual pigs— eating from the trough. See, I heard said once that our problem isn't that we sin. Our problem is that we've never done anything but sin. As a whole, we drink it down like water. Individually, as a culture, as a society, as a human race. Morning, noon, and night. It's all we've ever done. But imagine. Imagine that I could supernaturally transform that pig into a man. I submit to you this, if I could do that, that man would yank his head out of that trough quicker than you can say changed. And he would probably run to the table and wash that slop out with that iced tea. And then he would sit down to the table and eat like a man. What I've just described for you is conversion. It is a transformation. It is a new creation. Now, because that man was a pig for so long, he may have the inclination to go back to the trough. Now, that's backsliding. But as soon as he sticks his head in that trough and he tastes that slop, he's going to remember that he's no longer a pig, and he's going to return to the table like a man. That's repentance, a turning away from our sin. You see, the power of Christ in your life is transformational. My question for you today is, are you still at the trough? Have you ever left it? And if you are still at the trough, there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing to lose hope about. Remember, there is no condemnation in Christ. 
In conclusion, I would just like to ask you just a couple of questions. Really easy application today. Very, very personal application, though, for each of you. And the first is, do you accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? I mean, do you live in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? When you find yourself in your sin, when you find yourself unable to forgive those who have sinned against you, or maybe you find yourself at, in such a point of despair that suicide seems like a good idea. When you find yourself in those situations, do you accept the forgiveness of Christ? Do you really believe it? Because if you do, then you can rest easy. Because Christ will take care of you. He has the power over creation. He has the power over the law. And he has transformed you. And you can be confident that he will finish the work. My second question, are you still eating at the trough? I don't mean every day. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. I don't know. It's a very personal application. But I just want to let you know that if you do find yourself at the trough... Don't lose hope. Don't despair. Don't think to yourself, well, I've gone too far. Christ will never forgive me now. Don't walk away. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you find confidence in that? If you are saved here today, the power of Christ is at work in your life. And no matter what you do or say or think, the power of Christ is going to continue to work in your life. Rest in that. Be confident in that. Hold on to him. And if you're not saved here today, there's a guy named Jesus who can save you. All you got to do is ask. Ask.